Topic, um, topic of the Shir tonight is the halachic status of Christianity. Obviously, this is a Devar made Bru Moshe Olam, right, a matter of supreme religious importance. And so it's very important at the outset that I define what it is I want to accomplish and what the Shir is not about. Um, so let me state very clearly up front that this is a Shir about the halachic status of Christianity and not about the halachic status of Christians. Right, which is not the um, halachic status of Christianity and not the halachic status of Christians. Um, separating between the status of Christianity and Christians is a topic that has a long halachic pedigree. The simplest way of accomplishing it is a statement in the Talmud, in which Rabbi Yochanan claims that, at least outside of Eretz Yisrael, there are no longer any Ovdei Avodah although there certainly are religions which have the status of Avodah right, Now, it's not the world's most complementary way of making the distinction, since it assumes that in some way those people following Avadazara religions outside Israel don't really have the good old-fashioned pagan spirit, um, right? even though they think they're trying to be, but they don't really have it. Right? They're just carrying on ancient ritual. But from a halakhic perspective, it suffices. Right? So, the purpose, right? so regardless of what one concludes about the halakhic status of Christianity, right, that does not um, prejudice one as to the halakhic status of Christians. That's stage one. And I want to focus very specifically tonight on the status of Christianity as a religion. Um, secondly, um, every, um, right, every halachic um, shir can be given either uh, descriptively or prescriptively, meaning it can describe an is or it can describe an ought. Uh, right? So what I'm trying to do um, tonight mostly is describe halacha as it is, without prejudice as to whether there should or should not be, or is or is not room for creativity. I'm just saying this is my understanding of, right, of the sources of halakha as they are. What I do want to do at the outset, though, is establish a certain number of oughts. Right? And there's a certain parameters within which I would like to see the, hala- the discourse on the halakhic status of Christianity conducted. Right? And the first of these emerges um, from a uh, source number one, which exists only in English, is uh, from a, um, an article by Aaron Lichtenstein Schlitte, in uh, the marvelous uh, collection edited by Rabbi Shachter, uh, the Torah and General Culture. Uh, it's called Judaism Confronts Other Religions or Confronts Other, cult- other Cultures. That's, or something like that. It's a Judaism Confrontation with Culture. Thank you. Right? Edited by Rabbi Jacob J. Shachter, uh, which is a wonderful book. And in it, Rabbi Lichtenstein has an article which has this um, quote, which always I found just amazingly striking. Right? A plethora of cultural interests each valuable in its own right, can divert attention from the supreme challenges of religious existence, even to the point of distracting from the quest for the unum necessarium, that yirat shemayim, that the ribona sholam has nothing else in the world, may leave one like the young Augustine, weeping for the death of Dido for love to Aeneas, but weeping not his own death for want of love to thee, O God. So one, right, so one parameter within which the discussion should take place. Um, I suspect very much that Rav Lichtenstein thinks that halakhically Christianity is Avodah Zarah. Right? The Masorah I have from his students uh, write about his refusal to go into the Sistine Chapel. For example, while I would not choose to, uh, I don't want to project, I'm not a close enough Talmud to have that idea, I suspect it. But the fact, right, the halakhic status of Christianity, be it what it may, does not preclude him from when he needs a religious metaphor to try and explain to people what complete Yerat Shemayim is. Well, real de- religious devotion is, right? So the model he comes up with is St. Augustine. 
right? St. Augustine is right, capable of expressing the religious personality's complete devotion, right? And capable looking back in youth and saying, well, you know, that I wasted my time on romance novels, right? Meaning the, right, meaning the Aeneid, right? When I could have, uh, right, when I could have romance epics, I guess. Uh, right, when I could have um, been spending my time on Ahabat Hashem. So the discourse about Christianity, to me, right, has to be conducted in a way which enables us to preserve that appreciation. Right, that, right, that Christians can be deeply, profoundly religious human beings whose religious experience has something to tell us about the nature of the religious human being. Um, I've, I told my students that this summer I read um, two things back to back. This summer, this Pesach. Uh, one was an article by a contemporary Israeli lecturer um, explaining, it, explaining how he was raised with a, right, he was raised with a certain sense of the distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It was Jews were moral and non-Jews were immoral. And his father raised him that way and it was very effective religiously until, it, until at some point, I think he came to America and he went to university and discovered that not all non-Jews were immoral. And so he learned from this that this was the wrong way, right, this was the wrong way to go about teaching, right, teaching um, Jewish, um, right, teaching Jewish particularism. What one should do instead is teach, uh, is teach that Jews are interested in spirit and non-Jews are interested in matter. Right? That he found was sustainable. Uh, next to that, I read Rabbi Lichtenstein's dissertation on the Cambridge, on the Cambridge Neoplatonist Henry Moore, uh, which is all about how Henry Moore provided this magnificent model of somebody whose whole life was just dedicated towards v'chol ma'asech e'yu l'shem shemayim. He spent his entire time trying to unify guf and neshama right, in the service of God. And, right, tricks me, that's more the model I wish to emulate, right, as opposed to drawing distinctions which I think are unsustainable, in fact, in experience, right, that whatever our conclusion about the halachic status of a particular religion, it should not prevent us from having a genuine appreciation of the human beings who practice that religion. Okay, that's parameter number one. Parameter number two is from a famous essay of the Rav uh, called Confrontation. Um... Uh, right, which, um, where the Rav says, right, the word of faith reflects the intimate, the private, the paradoxically inexpressible cravings of the individual for, and is linking up with his maker. It reflects the numinous character and the strangeness of the act of faith of a particular community, which is totally incomprehensible to the man of a different faith community. Okay, so it's claim number one is that religions, right, cannot be merged with each other. Religious experiences are entirely unique, and the Jewish and Christian religious experiences are so different as to be incommunicable. Right? There's been a lot of discussion about what that means, and I don't want to get into that tonight. Um, you can see, for starters, um, right, that on the Boston College website, there's a, a symposium which I participated, which has a number of presentations and many, many responses to those presentations, and uh, that will give you a start about on the literature of confrontation, which is still growing pretty much daily. Um, okay, I think that actually that I get a chance, I, I finally had a chance to start reading this marvelous essay edited by Natty Helfgott, uh, who is a denizen of Sharon, has, which has a, some fascinating letters that pertain to this, and this volume, which has been utterly fascinating so far. Community Covenant and Committed, the Selected Letters to the Rope. Okay, but then he says, right, so in his conditions for interfaith dialogue, right, so he tells you that we members of the community of the few should always act with tact and understanding and refrain from suggesting to the community of the many, which is Right, the few is Jews and the many is Christians, right, which is both proud and prudent, changes to its ritual emendation of its text, non-interference with and non-involvement in something 
which is totally alien to us, is the conditio sine qua non for the furtherance of goodwill and mutual respect. Now we can talk about what precisely that means, but it seems pretty clear that the Rav thought that the furtherance of goodwill and mutual respect was a goal with regard to Christianity. Right? So there again, a parameter, right, whatever determination one makes, should not prevent one from pursuing goodwill and mutual respect. Now how that can or cannot be compatible with a, right, with a halachic determination right, is a fair question, but I think that, that the discussion has to be conducted within those terms. Right? Fourth, he says, we certainly have not been authorized by our history, sanctified by the martyrdom of millions, to even hint to another faith community that we are ready to revise historical attitudes, to trade favors pertaining to matters of faith, and to reconcile, quote, some, unquote, um, differences. Now, the rub there, right, is talking about the dangers implicit in interfaith dialogue of moving towards trading favors to try and come to a common, uh, to a common platform. That's not my topic tonight. Um, what I want to focus on specifically is the notion of how one's attitude towards another religion is affected by the facts of history. Right? And the fact of Jewish history in relationship to Christianity is that our history is sanctified by the martyrdom of millions. Um, and it seems to me right, this is, militates in the opposite direction. On the one hand, goodwill, mutual respect, appreciation of the human beings. And on the other hand, I at least think that um, prima facie, the, uh, right, reaching a halakhic conclusion regarding Christianity, which would cause one to conclude that those Jews who died al-Kiddush Hashem, rather than be baptized, right, did so in error, because, right, because Christianity is not the type of religion for which one has to suffer martyrdom rather than, right, rather than uh, be converted to, that strikes me as an extraordinarily problematic position for a Jewish, for a Jewish thing. Right, to end up saying that, Christianity is not, that conversion to Christianity in halakhic terms is not yehireg vel yavor, right, I think is deeply problematic. Um, and, right, that, of course, uh, to some degree predetermines the conversation because only Avodah Zarah, and at least Abizrahu Zarah, the ancillary aspects of Avodah Zarah, are the only things, really, that are relevant that are Yeharag Yavor, that require martyrdom. Right, so a determination that Christianity in no way relates to Avodah Zarah, even borders Avodah Zarah, seems to me really difficult to sustain in terms of Jewish history. Now, right, truth, you know, Right, sometimes we say Yikova Dinitahar, right? That the law has to go where the law goes regardless of consequences. But it should at least make us extremely hesitant, I think, right, to reach that conclusion. Um, because I think that we have a history sanctified right, we have a history sanctified by the uh, by the martyrdom of millions, and that cannot be lightly um, disposed of. If we have a notion that um, to some degree, right, B'nai Israel, if not Nevi'im or B'nai Nevi'im, Right, Jews are not prophets and the sons of prophets, and that means that the activity, right, the activity of the Jewish collective, right, the practice, the halachic practice of the Jewish collective, right, is, is an important datum in halachic decision-making. So a lot of people choosing to die is a datum in halachic decision-making. Okay. Um, Nafkaminas, right, practical differences that emerge uh, from this. So one... One early, uh, one, one way of testing, right, how one can discuss the attitudinal issues before one gets to halakha is, uh, right, without taking a um, right, halakhic position, is which text of the Aleinu one chooses to say. Right, the original prayer of the Aleinu, right, says, the right God, 
has not made us like the nations of the land and established us as the families of the earth, for he has not established our portion like theirs and our fate like all their multitudes. Right? That everyone has. And then we get to a text, right, which it originally read, right, because they pray to nothingness and emptiness, and they pray to a God who does not save, um, right? At some point, the intermediate, the intermediate statement about um, other religions, which was certainly taken in the Middle Ages to refer to a particular other religion, namely Christianity, um, right? With fungimatrias to make it right to make the name add up, and right? And an ale lo yoshia, right? Uh, sounds very much like a reference to a particular individual who was claimed, right? Who claimed to be the right the moshia. Um, right, so that was removed by Christian censors. Right, and so the question then is, right, we now have the opportunity to put it back without, uh, right, without risking pogroms. Should we or should we not? Um, so on the one hand, um, if we don't put it back in, so we're basically surrendering to censorship. And on the other hand, if we put it back in, right, so we're, right, this is not a statement uh, designed to further um, goodwill and mutual respect. Um, right, nor is it one which is designed to give one an appreciation of the depth of the religious experience of the individuals uh, undergoing it. Right, so the question of right as to whether or not one puts that um, whether or not one puts that sentence back in seems to me a good test as to how one navigates this. Um, and um, I myself am ambivalent because of those two issues. Uh, although I do love quoting Rabbi Saul Berman, um, who once when I was davening with him heard somebody put the line back in and said. Um, in, halachic, right, in traditional terms, right, is our obligation to express gratitude to the censors. Uh, right, because they took this line out, right, which we should, which he thought we should be embarrassed um, about having put in to begin with. Okay. Right, those are, right, that's, those are parameters from the, um, from the outset. Again, goodwill, mutual respect, appreciation of the depth and value of the religious experience of others, countered with a strong bias towards believing that at least for a Jew, conversion to Christianity has to be yehareg velya avor, something that one right, should suffer martyrdom rather than, rather than undergo. Okay. That's background. We'll get to halakha. Okay. Um, so halakhically, there are, um, there are traditionally supposed to be three positions. Right? The three positions are traditionally supposed to be those of Tosafot, the Rambam, and the Iri. Um, what we'll... Um, I spent last summer in this program um, with my students doing precisely um, right, that, um, this issue. Um, if you're interested, you can see my students' response on the issue online at uh, summerdaytnidrash.org. And one of the things that emerged from that discussion, which I hope that I'll um, helpfully convey to you, is that the traditional understanding is not the halachic self-understanding. Right? I mean, if you look through halachic history, halacha doesn't understand there as being three clear opinions. Um, and in, in fact, each of those opinions may have been misrepresented. Um, so what I'm going to try and do is go through each of those opinions step by step, um, both telling you what the traditional understanding is and then hopefully complicating that understanding um, in the end. Okay, so one position, right, one position, or one piece of evidence, right, which is probably the prima facie piece of evidence, if everything else went away, you'd come back to this, before we get to any Rishonim, really, is as follows. Right, in source number four, Right, the Mishnah Navodah Zarah says that um, one is not allowed to engage in commerce with idolaters three days before and three days after their holidays, 
let alone on their holidays themselves. Okay? Right, that's a pretty straightforward um, position. Um, then, if we go to source number five, so the, um, right, so the um, Gemara discusses, well, it, when, we, when we say three days, three days both, three days before, three days after, does that mean a total of five days or a total of seven days? Right, and in the process of that, right, the evidence that is cited, that Rav Tachlif of Baravdimi, we're in source number five, said the name of Shmuel, that a note three, in the uncensored edition, right, a note three is, enti- is always forbidden. Okay, meaning that a note three, whose holiday is on Sunday, right, you can never engage in commerce with them, because they have a weekly holiday, three days before, three days after, seven days a week. Okay, so we learned that these people called note three, who have a holiday on Sunday, Right, one is never, or at least have a weekly holiday, one is never allowed to engage in commerce with them on Sunday. Similarly, if we look in uh, source number six, this is the Gemara and Tanit, um, Dav Chavzayin. So the Gemara talks about the ritual performed by the people, uh, right, by the people in the cities from which the, um, right, from which the uh, community representatives of the Beit HaMikdash were taken. Right, so while the official representatives were in the Beit HaMikdash, um, laying hands, uh, laying hands on sacrifices on behalf of the community, the townspeople where they came from engaged in this elaborate ritual, which included fasting during the daytime, Monday through Thursday, not Friday and not Shabbos. Right? The the, um, the initial bracha doesn't mention Sunday, so the Gemara says, "Gee, okay, we understand what Friday to prepare for Shabbos. Shabbos because it's Shabbos. You're not allowed to fast on Shabbos. Why didn't they fast on Sunday?" So the Gemara says, "Because of the notzrim." Okay, so the Notrim, so now we know that Notrim have a weekly holiday, which it turns out is Sunday. Right? And for some reason we're not right, we don't have great relations with the Notrim. Okay, who are the Notrim? So Rashi, source number seven, tells you that a Notri is Haholeich, right again, this is in the uncensored edition. Um, right? Um, should be aware, I guess the standard printed edition of the Talmud, which is the Vilna Shas, the nineteenth century edition produced by the press of the widow and the brothers Ram. Is, uh, right, has had many of the um, apparently, an, uh, without prejudging the issue, apparently anti-Christian uh, statements in the Talmud censored. Uh, there was a work called the Chesronot Hashat, which was published, which basically puts all the anti-Christian things back in. Um, right, which now the Steinsaltz edition, for example, has them back in anyway. I think the Artscroll edition probably has them back at least in the translation, although not, not, on, the prim- not on the primary text. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, but these are, but there's no there's no debate about whether they are authentic or not, right? We have manuscripts which have them. It's just clear they were censored. So in the uncensored edition of Rashi, right, who's a notri? Haholech pitaut shel ish. Okay, somebody who follows in the mistake of that man. Shetzivalem lasod yom eid bechad b'shabbat. Okay, that man presumably is somebody who could fairly be described as a notri, right, which means Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, right, so you have a, right, so on the prima facie Talmudic evidence, it's pretty clear that Notzrim, right, right, meaning follower, right, meaning followers of the man from Nazareth, right, are, um, right, are, have a holiday on Sunday, and that, right, and that, and trading with them is entirely forbidden, because that holiday on Sunday is considered to be a holiday of Avodazara. Right, so if you simply take the Talmudic evidence at face value, there's no question that the halachic status of Christianity is as Avodazara. Uh, as we'll see, right, that the psak, however, the resulting psak became untenable, uh, right, because commerce with Christians was um, 
was necessary for survival in the um, right, in the in Christian Europe in the Middle Ages, and so there are many. Right, so that's why people began distinguishing between Christians and Christianity. But again, if you just take the, t- the prima facie Talmudic evidence, Notrim are of the Avodazara, and Rashi's identification seems highly plausible. Okay, what does the Rambam hold? So we're going to start with the, um, the famous positions of the Rambam. Okay, that's, start, that's starting point number one. Uh, right, again, there's supposed to be three positions traditionally. Maimonides, Tosafot, and, right, and the Meiri. So we're going to start by doing the Rambam, Maimonides. So he begins by saying, source number eight, and again here, once again, we have a censored and uncensored edition. Right? The censored edition said Canaanites, um, but Canaanites, Canaanite sects did not have so much uh, right, prevalence in the time of the Rambam. And the real text is Edomim, right, Edomites. And Edomites in rabbinic literature is a reference to, right, Edom is a reference to Rome, right, and Rome is a reference to Christianity. So Edomites in the Christians are Ovde Kochavim Mozalotim, right? They're halachically considered to be Ovde Avadazara. And throughout this booklet, I've translated Avadazara's idolatry. It's a rotten translation, but I don't have a better one. Um, and I, I realized I probably should have done a global search replace and just replaced it with the translation italicized, Avadazara. So please just consider it as that. Okay, so, so right, so Edomim Christians are Ovde Avadazara, Vyom Rishonu Yom Edam. And the first day, right, and the first day of the week, Sunday, is their festival. Right, and therefore, commercial restrictions um, apply, right, apply to them, although we don't hold all seven days of the week because we don't hold three days before and after. Okay, so the, the Ramam's ruling here is really pretty clear. Christians are of the Avadazara. Um, to look at source, at source number nine, uh, the Ramam is more um, detailed. It says, Veda and No. Shazot Umaha Notrit, that this Uma, the Christians, right, there's been a lot of discussion in contemporary times about the meaning of the word Uma as it applies to religion, so I'd rather just leave it untranslated rather than just say nation. So this Uma, the Christians, Ha'umedet Beta'anat HaMashiach, okay, which stands on the claim of the Messiah, Al-Chilov Kituteha, in all the various sects, right, and is aware that Christianity is not unified. So in all the various sects, Kulam of Avadazara, Okay, couldn't ask for a clearer statement. All the sects, they're all of the Avadazarah. And all their festivals are forbidden, right, meaning you cannot engage in commerce with them on their festivals. And one behaves with them in the entire Torah in the same way that one behaves with the Avadazarah. So here, we're dealing with the translations. I don't know, right, if I were really being a sensitive modern reader, I would say, well, he already said they're of the Avadazarah, so why would one think differently? Um, right, so there seems to be a little tension understanding that perhaps they're not like all of, they're not exactly like of the Avodah they're just halakhically like of the Avodah maybe. Or it could also be that he's aware that in Christian Europe people are behaving, are treating them differently, and so he's emphasizing that although I know that there are in Christian Europe people who say different things, no, you behave with them exactly like you behave with all other of the Avodah I'm not sure which way to read it. Okay, and therefore Sunday is in the category of the festivals of the Gentiles. Therefore it is forbidden to transact any business with a believer in the Messiah on, all right, on Sunday in any matter. Right, but rather, one behaves with um, Christians on their festivals like one behaves with any other Oved Avodah 
on their festival. The Kach Be'er Talmud, as the Talmud explained. Right? The Talmud said, note three, Le'olam Asur. Okay, so on a halachic level, right, in both, right, in both these works, Maimonides' position is apparently pellucid, right, absolutely, right, absolutely clear that all versions of, Christ, of Christianity are of a Dazara. Yes? So again, what exactly the parameters are of days before, days after, we don't need to get into what the halachic parameters are. Um, yes? Yeah, if we were dealing with the halakha of whether it's permissible to engage in commerce with Christians, we could talk about that. But I'm not interested in the practical halakha. I'm only interested in what the halakhic status of Christians, of Christianity is. Is it Abu Dazara or not? And seemingly it is. Right? Whatever the whatever ways out you could find. Okay, there is another statement of the Rambam and Hilchot Melachim, which is often quoted nowadays in the context of uh, attempts at interfaith cooperation, uh, which deserves to be quoted here, right? In which he says. Um, right, aval nachshavot barei olam ein koach badam hasigal. But the um, the thoughts of the creator of the world, human beings, the human human beings, don't have the capacity to grasp them. Kilo derachin derachav, lo machshavotena machshavotav, because his our ways are not his ways, our thoughts are not his thoughts. The cholad brima elus, all these things shall Yeshua hanotzri. Okay, right of Jesus of Nazareth. The shalzeh yishmeili shemad acharav, and of the Ishmaelite Muhammad, who arose after him. They're all just there to clear the path for the true Messiah, the true King Messiah. And to, uh, to engage in tikkun olam, right, the original context of the phrase tikkun olam, right, to perfect the world, to serve God in unity. Shneemar, right, may have a whole verse about how, right, about how, every, about how eventually Right, um, the, the, that God will turn to the nations, right, with a clear, with a clear tongue to call, and all of them will be called to, um, right, to serve in the name of God and to and to serve Him together. Right. In what way has the words of Yeshua on Notri contributed to this? Um, because the entire world is already filled with the talk of the Messiah and the Torah and the commandments. Okay, right. So, right here you have a positive estimation of the role of Christianity in the world. Uh, right, and, that, and this much has been built off. Um, I myself am not so convinced that um, I'm not so convinced that that a, that a positive that so much can be made of this. But right, Maimonides is, is trying to explain to people, gee, if we're really God's chosen people, why is it that we're such a minority, and why is it these other religions which have no divine sanction at all, why are they spreading? The answer is understand that they're all part of our plan, and look, all the really cool ideas they have, they got from us, and it's working. Right, right. Those ideas are spreading. I don't think that quite turns into this metaphysical appreciation. It's not the same thing as the quote from Lichtenstein at the outset. Um, okay, so you can make of it what you will. It doesn't have any halachic consequences. Right? It doesn't change anything about halachic status. And I'm not sure how much significance one should one should um, recite uh, ascribe to this. You know, or if it's not on the order of explaining why it is that spiders are important. Right, because in some sense, spiders contribute to the perfection of the world. Uh, right, Lahav deal, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's more to it than that. Ari, you had a question. Um, okay, so at this point, right, at this point, if one were to say, what do we know about the halachic status of Christianity? The answer is Christianity is of a dazara. Right, no two ways about it. In the position of the Rambam. Okay, what about the position of the Tosafot? So the position of the Tosafot begin uh, source number 11, 
the Gemara in Sanhedrin, in which Rabbi Yochanan begins by saying, if we're not for the letter Vav in the word Ha'elucha, which is what the, um, the, the community of Israel says after the golden calf is built, Eila lohecha Yisrael asher Ha'elucha mi'aretz Mitzrayim. So Rabbi Yochanan said, it's a good thing they said Ha'elucha and not Ha'elcha, which he understands as meaning, right, these are, right, these are the gods, O Israel, as opposed to this is the God, O Israel. Okay, right? Or this is the Elohim, O Israel, right? Who have, as opposed to who has, brought you out of Egypt. Okay, so, right, so Rabbi Yochanan seems to imply that if it had said who has brought you out, implying, ex- right, meaning that it applied exclu- exclusively to the golden calf, then the Jews would have deserved complete destruction. And Moses' plea to save them would not have worked. Okay, because they say who have, so we assume that they mean not only the golden calf, but also the true God of Israel. Okay, to which Arashim Ben Yochai is cited as responding, but anyone who is Meshatev Shem Shemayim V'davar Acher, anyone who, right, who partners the name of heaven with anything else, is an Ekar Min HaOlam. Right, is uprooted from the world, Shenemar, Bilti Hashem Levado. Okay, all right. Other, other than to God alone, meaning that acts of worship have to be engaged into God alone. Okay, um, okay. So here we have a notion that there is something called shituf shem shemayim v'davarachir, right? The partnering of the name of God with something else. Now this can be understood in one of two ways. It can be understood as referring to any right to a notion of believing. Right or act right or act or expressing, right expressing that belief in action or words. Okay, and that which one it refers to is going to become important. Okay. Secondly, we should know from source number twelve, um, right, that there is a prohibition, right, against swearing by any god other than God. Right. It says One is not allowed to mention the other na- the names of other gods, particularly in the context of oaths. And the father of Shmuel um, right, used this to come to the halachic conclusion that one is not allowed to form partnerships with worshippers of other religions because in the context of a partnership there are often disputes. The classic way of resolving disputes over money in ancient partnerships was to take, right, was to have the accused party take an oath. And in that oath the accused party would mention the name of their god. Right? Therefore forming a partnership with a worshipper of another religion led inevitably towards having, the, right, towards your compelling that, uh, that person to then mention the name of their God. You're not allowed to have, you're not allowed to even cause the mention of the name of other gods. Okay, those two are halachic background. Um, now based, um, based on that, it, right, it should in fact have been impossible for Jews to form business partnerships with Christians. But in medieval Christian Europe, it was fundamentally impossible for Jews to go into business without Christian partners. Right, so a way, right, so there was a pract- great pressure practically to find a way out of this. A number of ways were found. Um, the particular way we're interested is that described by, in many, many versions of Tosafot. I'm citing three, I give you three here in sources 13 through 15, but there are many, many, many versions of this Tosafot. Um, and they say something like this. Okay, so what do we do? Right, what do we do about the fact that, uh, right, about the problem of forming partnerships with Christians? Well, they swear by their saints. That doesn't bother us because they don't think their saints are divine. Okay, that's step one. 
right? So we can deal with all the O's by saying so and so and saying so and so. That's not a problem for us. Then we claim, we'll start with source number 13. Even though, even though they mention among their saints also the name of heaven, they say God. That's what it sounds like. But their intention is for something other than the being we identify as God. Right? Nonetheless, first of all, right, this is not the name of another God. Right? Because they're using the name of our God. Okay? Even though their intention is for a being other than the God we identify. Right? But the name cannot be recorded right, if a um, right, let's say if right, if a worshipper of a right, of, of a particular group of Jews right chose to say the name Hashem in an oath. Right? Even though they have reference to right to right to an alternative deity. But you can't say that the word Hashem is the name of another God. Okay? Right, that's stage one. Right? So then he says, also, Gam da'atam lo se shamayim. And furthermore, okay, here we get a little dice here. Furthermore, when, right, when they say that name, right, and they mean something else, the something else they mean, right, is still the creator of heaven. Okay? So therefore, it's still not Right, it's still not swearing by another god because they're using the right name and it's close. Okay, right, now that, that's already a very dicey claim, right? That they're claiming, right, because they have their theology, right, their theology, they, the being they misidentify as God shares attributes with our God. Right, namely, is the creator, the creator of heaven. The Apa, now we go, the Apopi, and even though Shemeshatin Shem Shemaim Edvarachir, and even though they are partnering the name of heaven with something else, we have never found that it is forbidden to cause others to partner in this way. The question is, what is meant here? Right? So we said, okay, it's not a name, it's not a name of another religion. Right? And furthermore, they don't really intend a completely different God. And finally, even though there is this thing called shituf, partnering involved, we're not sure Right. We've never found it being prohibited to cause Gentiles to partner. Okay, that's version number one. Let's read version number two. All right, yes? Yeah. We'll get there. Let's read this. Well, again, I, I, would presume that, I would presume that it is the name of Jesus, but I don't know, I don't know that for sure. We'll get there, right? I'm just trying to figure out what he thinks. Okay. This version of Tosfut seems to be saying, right? There, I'm giving you three versions. There are many more, and you'll see that each of them change. All right? Yes. So that's a whole challenge, right? But, you know, they think of what maybe they maybe they mean one thing when they say the word God. They mean something else, right? When they refer to a different person of the Trinity, right? We don't know, right? Well, that's where I'm going to end up. That right? Christian theology is a morass. Right? And uh, for us to figure this out halakhically is an extraordinarily difficult task. Right? To figure out what exactly do they mean, right? When they've been debating this themselves for uh, for 2,000 years now. Uh, yeah, right? You know, they had wars fought about the precise meaning of the Trinity, right? We're going to establish with complete precision, nope, this is what the Trinity means. <laughs> right? And then, of course, since they're, right, they're bound by our determination of the Sheva Mitzvah, they know right? So they'll understand that what they mean is what we say it is. Yes, Ariel. 
Wait, 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 wait till we get there. Don't, don't, don't jump the gun and help her tell you. Okay, you were here, you were there all last summer. Come on, that's cheating. Yeah, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Okay. Uh, okay. Version number fourteen tells in Bechorot says, "The apple, right? imahem shem Even though they mention with the kadshim, right, which I presume are the saints, but it could be other relics. Um, the name of heaven, kavanatam the davar, the and their intent is for something else. Mikol makom shem Nonetheless, this is not a name of Avadazara. Why? Kidatam. L'shem l'seishamayim v'aretz. Okay, here it's not two separate arguments. A, that first of all it's the right name. And B, anyway, they sort of have the right intent. Here it's not the wrong name because they have the intent of the Creator. Okay, let's make it, right? That version has a much stronger argument. Right, that really, right, that really, there's no argument about language independent of theology. Right, what we're saying is, right, what we're saying is that their theology is close enough that even that even when they in, right when they say the word, right, their intention is close enough to ours to not make it a name of Avodazara. Okay, version number three. Um, right, so Tosfot Rush says explicitly, um, they, right, the Tosfot Afal Pishem Askirin Shem Shemayim, the Kavanatan Liyeshu Hanotri. Mikol makom, eno maskirin shem avodazara, vigam da'atam lo seishamayim v'aretz. Okay, so in this version it's very clear exactly what they mean. Right, when they say the name of heaven, they mean Yeshu HaNotri, but nonetheless it's the right name, and when they say Yeshu HaNotri, they still mean the creator of heaven and earth. Okay, and again, right, then we again we go say, v'yafel gav shemeshatin shem shemayim v'devar acher, Right, we have not found that they know Amos Ari Malashitu. Okay, so out of this Tosfot, there are right, there emerge um, there emerges the following halachic argument. People look at this Tosfot and traditionally understood. Right, this is the way Tosfot has traditionally been understood. Look, it says that even though they're Mashatev Shem Shemayim Acher, nonetheless, right, we have not found that it's forbidden to cause Gentiles to be Mishatev Shem Shemayim Acher. What does that mean? Well, it must mean that, right, since we have a prohibition of Lifnei Iver, of, of right, placing stumbling blocks before the blind, and that applies to Gentiles, it must mean that Lishatev Shem Shemayim Acher is not prohibited for Gentiles. Now, if we say that Lishatev Shem Shemayim Acher means belief in a divided Godhead, right, it means belief in a Trinity, Right? Uh, or, more to the point, belief in, a, in polytheism. Right? right? If we assume that L'shatev Shem Shemayim Devar Acher means polytheism, so then we discover that Gentiles are not commanded against polytheism, so long as they have in their pantheon right, a God who is the creator of heaven and earth. And that's how this argument, right, so the Tosfet has traditionally been cited as evidence for the position that Christianity is of a Dazara for Jews, because nobody ever suggested that Jews could be polytheists, right? right? It says, How could you not say that? Right? So it must be, right? It must be that there is a new category of Avadazara that applies to Jews but not to non-Jews. So now we have, this, this is a best of all worlds halachic result. 
because it, li- it lets it remain a Heregel Yavor for Jews, right? We still have to die rather than doing it. But it's perfectly fine for them. So we can engage in commerce with them without the slightest discussion, right? So this has tremendous appeal as a halachic solution, and it's probably the dominant halachic position in Ashkenaz from at least the 14th century. Um, yeah, so now the only problem is that it's wrong, um, right? from a purely textual perspective. Now, whether it's wrong or not, is a, you know, I should say, is a huge debate. Uh, if you look in the standard collection of responsa in the Shulchan Aruch, right, so they list like 40 people on each side as to what this text means, and, um, right, and that number gets added to all the time. Um, what I hope to show you soon is that, however, most of, that, um, most of those citations are mistaken for a, right, for a technical reason. Um, on this issue, I would say, whether the Shatev Shem Shemayim and refers, or it means polytheism, it seems to me, again, I have to say in my humble opinion, because there are greater scholars than I who have thought otherwise, but, but um, there is, I think, just about no way to read it as permitting this. Um, the, right, if you read, the, just follow the flow of Tosfot, right, he's, right, when he talks about Meshatfin Shem Shemayim and the flow of Tosfot refers to, the, right, the way Tosfot sets up, he says, look, First of all, they swear by their saints, or by their holy books, right? He says, right, and then they swear by this name. This name by itself is not a problem. Ah, then we have a second problem, but they're mentioning this name together with the saints. That is Shituv Shem Shemayim Edavar Acher, and there's a technical prohibition against swearing by God's name together with anything else. Okay, that's what Shituv, right, and we go back to the verse, it means, right, that they, right, that they combine God with something else in the statement, Eil Elohecha Yisrael, right? There was a verbal acknowledgement of divinity which combined God with somebody else. It's not a belief problem, right? It's, right, it's, a, it's a worship problem. And if you look at the text of Tosfat, I've given you three, there are a hundred. Um, Yaakov Ganak and I spent um, several weeks on this many years ago, and I still think that our conclusion we reached, we reached then is still correct, that there really is no plausible way right? as far as we can see, despite Mechilas quote all the great rabbis who seem to have read it otherwise, there is no way to read Tosfot as saying that. Um, and that there is no, and even though, now we have an interesting question, because practically, Jewish practice is that this is correct. But historically, as a matter of text, it's not. Um, right? That there does not seem to have been any position ever in the Middle Ages that believed that there was a category of idolatry for non-Jews and not for Jews, called, right, for Jews and not for non-Jews, which was called Shituf Shem Shemayim Devar Acher. Right, and all the Tosafos, if you read them closely, all refer to this technical problem of, uh, to this technical problem of, um, of partnering the, uh, of partnering the name of God with somebody else in the context, in the context of an oath. Okay. But while this is true, um, it may be that the people seeking to mine a positive halachic appreciation of Christianity uh, were looking at the wrong part of Tosfot. And actually, if you look at the later halachic literature, you'll discover that while nowadays it is conventional to present it as, well, there is the position of Maimonides that Christianity is idolatry, as Avodah and the position of the Tosafos that it's Avodah for us but not for them, most of the later figures who wanted to find a way out of, out of calling Christianity Abadah Zarah, did not limit themselves to Tosafot. Okay, so we're going to do one particular example of that. We'll start by looking at source number 16. Okay? Source number 16, which is Maimonides' Book of Commandments, which you'll note we didn't quote earlier. Right, right, there is no statement about Christianity or Christians as such 
in the um, right in the um, right in the Mishnah Torah, and we should point out further um, that so far, right, we started the Shira by distinguishing between Christianity and Christians on the grounds that we wanted to say that well, even if Christianity turns out to be Avodazara, that shouldn't tre- regard that shouldn't um, necessarily determine our treatment of Christians. But if we're thinking clearly, we can realize, gee, it's possible for Christianity to not be Avodazara but Christians nonetheless to be of the Avodazara. Um, okay, right, you know, if one, a good mnemonic for this would be Mark Twain's famous line that Christianity is a wonderful religion that has never been tried. Um, right, so, right, so it might be that right, Christianity itself is not a problem at all. It's just the Christians we have trouble with. Um, okay, so the Sefer Mitzvah, the Ramah says the following. HaMitzvah HaShniya, the second commandment is, is right. He commanded us to believe in the unity, right? Actually, right of God. And this is that we should believe. That the act, right? The one who causes the existence and its, and its first cause, um, right? The activator of existence and its first cause, Echad who is one. Echad is one. Sorry. Vehu amro Shema Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Ah, Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Right? So the second commandment is, right, is that we should believe in the unity of God. And that commandment comes from a pasuk which is addressed, addressed specific. If we look at the Ram and Nilchot Yisodei HaTorah, right, it tells us, um, right, this God of whom we were discussing, Echad hu veino shnayim v'loyetarel shnayim. It's one and not two or more than two. Ela Echad, one, he goes through a long explanation of what the singleness of God is, right? God is simple in a way that no other being has ever been simple, right? Because God is not divisible, right? God is not made of lots of identical parts. God is not made of lots of different parts. God is just is, right? Undifferentiated being. And how do we know this? So he tells you at the end, Okay. So this opens uh, a very large hole in right, if one takes seriously Amonides' proof text, right, it's a proof text which is not in any way connected to the seven commandments of Noah. Right, it's explicitly a Jewish proof text. So that opens a, uh, right, a gaping hole, which the Seder Mishnah, which is a 19th century German commentary on the Mishnah Torah, I forget the name of the rabbi, I apologize. Sev Wolf Bamberger, is that possible? Um, right, so he... Uh, right, so he takes right takes this opening and drives a Mack truck through it. Right, so he says, right, so he starts off by analyzing the famous positions of the halachot gedolot and Nachmanides, as presented by Nachmanides. Right, Nachmanides says that belief in God is the first commandment. Um, the halachot gedolot leaves this out of his list of commandments, and Nachmanides explains he leaves it out because belief in God cannot be a commandment because it would be circular. Right, who is commanding me to believe in God? Well, right, God. Well, I don't, you know, if I don't believe in Him, right, on what grounds do I listen to this command? Right. So, Nachmanides says, right, it's obviously ridiculous for God to command us to believe in Him, and therefore we have to take belief in God as a premise for all other commandments, and not as a commandment in and of itself. So the um, right. So the Seder Mishnah says, you know, right, the Bahag, the Ramban defends the Bahag by saying that. Right, that he doesn't list it, but of course he thinks you have to believe it, because how could you have commandments without God? I'm not so sure. Right, I don't find this compelling in human psychology, 
Because I can believe people, I can find ways in which people could believe in all the commandments without believing in the existence of the commanding God. Um, right, that's right, that's his belief. Right? It's possible for human beings to fulfill all the commandments without believing in his existence. And furthermore, he says, if this is so, so why has no one ever bothered to tell us that non-Jews are required to believe in God? Right? They're not allowed to curse God. They're not allowed to worship Abedah Zarah, but no one ever said they had to believe. So obviously, we expect them to be able to fulfill their commandments without believing in God. Okay. Um, right? So therefore, he says, it seems to him clearly that, clearly that non-Jews are commanded against having other gods, but not to have our God. That's stage one. This is now while we're pointing out that there are all, the, all these theological differences in the commandments between Jews and non-Jews, right? He says, "Well, right, let's point out that um, if non-Jews are not commanded to believe in God, it seems really unlikely that they're commanded to believe in the unity of God. Right? They can't believe in other gods. That doesn't tell us anything about the unity of God. So, who says that non-Jews are commanded about the unity of God? Now we look in the Mishnah Torah, and we look in the Sefer Mitzvot, and we see, look, the commandment about the unity of God." Is all right? Is all about right? Is all about Jews? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Okay, so therefore, he comes up right now. He doesn't actually read Tosafot this way, but I think that his argument uh, matters right. So he ends up saying, on a practical level, that there are two different kinds of shituf. There is shituf, which means believing in God and other gods. That he thinks is prohibited to non-Jews also. From the verse, you shall not have other gods. But belief in a divided God, right, belief in a divided God, he doesn't understand, right, he says there's no prohibition against that at all. Now he actually ends up thinking that that's what Tosfut means when they say, That seems to me insupportable. But you can make the same argument with more power from the fact that Tosfut say that when, they, when Gentiles, Christians, use the name of heaven, even though they have intent for a different part of the Trinity, since they also have intent for the name, right, for the name of heaven, for the Creator of heaven, therefore their use of that name is not considered the use of an idolatrous name. Right. So the Seder Mishnah actually opens up. Right. Is a reading of Tosafot. Right. Um, and I think that actually, if you discover all the, if you look at all the later Achronim, you'll discover that just about nobody distinguishes between the Rambam and Tosafot. Right. Everyone who argues that, that Tosafot think, um, think that Christianity is not of Adazara, think the same argue the same thing about the Rambam, they can do this because all the sections about Christianity and the Rambam were censored. Right, so, they didn't, right, so, they, so they didn't have access to them. Uh, but on a theological level, the Seder Mishnah argues that, right, that we have to understand that Christianity is not classical polytheism. Right, Christianity, right, Christianity is a Right, Christianity is a belief in a different kind of God. Now, I should say that I have not, uh, that I have not been, in, I've, I've been more, I've gone beyond his own presentation. If you look at his own presentation, what he actually says is that it's okay, right, that it's, um, right, that it's okay um, for non-Jews to believe in hierarchical divinity, but not in, uh, right, but not in um, co-equal divinities. Okay, the Seder Mishnah's actual formulation is that, Christ, that, you're, that non-Jews are not allowed to believe in gods who can compete with each other, but they're allowed to believe in a pantheon with a chief god and subordinate gods. Um, now, how this relates to Christianity is utterly unclear to me. Right? Because whatever Christian, Christian theology says, it does not have a hierarchy of divinities. 
But what I would argue is that um, the theoretical position of the right of the um, of the Seder Mishnah is that there is no technical prohibition against non-Jews believing in a divided divinity as well. The whole point is simply that there cannot be competing divinities. And this, it seems to me, is actually a plausible reading of Tosfot. Um, right? And the Seder Mishnah actually does come up with a way of claiming that this prohibition um, textually can apply to, to, can apply to non-Jews and non-Jews, which no one has ever really come up with for the concept of Shituf, by claiming that Lo is universal, but Bilti Lashem Levado is, um, right, is, um, is Jewish. But again, it doesn't work so well because Bilti Lashem Levado doesn't seem to be referring to this kind of divided, right, divided Godhead. Um, and there is no halachic warrant uh, for a position that distinguishes between Jews and non-Jews. Yes, John? Yes, it does seem to ignore the Gemara that says Christianity is a That's entirely, that's entirely true. Oh, Senator, do you want to say something? Yeah. Well, with that, the, the, uh, yeah. Um, question, what, what yeah. In other words, it, it's, right. Um, so it's. You know, right. Now, I have no. I, I agree with that reading entirely. Although it happens historically, it seems that that was not the way they swore in the Middle Ages. Um, right. They actually they swore by God and by God in the Bible. Um, right. And um, I think Jacob Katz has a whole list of the actual oaths used by Christians and they didn't actually swear by the three persons of the Trinity. So historically that problem doesn't bother me. But the that the meaning of L'Shatev, right, I'm coming down entirely in agreement with you. The meaning of L'Shatev is to right, is talk is using God's name with anything else, right? You know, by God and by God and the and the head of my eraser, right? Or by you know and the great bird of the galaxy, whatever you want, right? Right, whatever whatever you whatever you want. I, right, what I'm arguing is that that of course Although I think that's correct, it's not the way many Achronim read the Tosfot. But I'm suggesting that Tosfot does say that they, that is earlier, right? That there's a separate issue, which is forget the partnering. They're mentioning a name of Avodazara, and he says no, that's not a problem because their intent is still, right? And the Beni Ruchim is particularly clear. He says they say they say God, they mean Yeshua Nutsri, and it's still not a, a name of Avodazara, but not because the name God is by itself important, but because their intent is still the Creator of Heaven. Right, so that it seems to me opens much more room than the the word of Shituf. Right, that's already a theolog- unquestionably a theological claim. Right, that saying God when you refer to both Yeshua Hanotri and the Creator of heaven and earth is not saying a name of Avadazara. Right, that's a very powerful statement. How far we take it halachically, I don't know. The Seder Mishnah takes it to the brink. Right, he, now he proves it from the Rambam, which is a bit problematic because the Rambam says explicitly that Notrimo of Avadazara. But I hope I'm going to bridge that gap before the shear is over. Sure. So Tosfos itself, you know, the, within the school, and certainly uh, we're talking about Hainan Tukir, I think the, the way would more in the context of oaths. Well, 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 you know, I, again, I, I have no question. Shituf is talking about oaths. Right? I want to brag, that part of Tosfos, I want to quote historically, people understood it one way, that way is incorrect. I think there's the other point in Tosfos, which is valuable, and again, there were supposed to be three positions. At the end of this year, I hope there's only going to be one. Um, okay, so, so we have the position of, of the Rambam, who says that all Christians are of the Abad we have the position of Tosfod, who has this theologically peculiar position, right? We don't, we don't know what the halachic consequences are, right? Because this claim about Oz is, right? So then, right, the Nota Behuda, which is source number 19, I gave you, just goes to town and he says, what are they talking about, right? He says, people keep saying, non-Jews are not commanded about Shituf. What are we talking about? Talking about Oz, right? He says, I've looked, people keep saying, right, people write books with, in the introduction, it says, the non-Jews are not commanded regarding partnering God 
And therefore Christians are not idolaters in their own religion. What are they talking about? He said, I've searched the Babylonian Talmud, I've searched the Palestinian Talmud, I've searched all rabbinic literature, ain't there. And he's right. Maniastati. Nodibuta's son writes this, and, I, and again, you can line 40 achronim up on each side, and I come down squarely on his side. But I have this peculiar language in Tosfut. Right? And I have the Seder Mishnah's argument in the Rambam, which is correct. The Rambam's, right, the Rambam's statements about belief in the unity of God right, are derived from a verse which is expressed, which is, which is explicitly directed only to Jews. Okay. So, but many of you pointed out, gee, but you know, all this is just whistling in the dark, because, after all, the um, Gemara says that Notrim are idolaters. So here, right, there is, we first begin the famous tradition of Meiri. Okay, Meiri, uh, right, um, begins by saying, those Notrim, right, that, that word doesn't mean what you think it meant. Okay, so Meiri says that Notrim, right, if you look at verse number 20, V'mashem amru b'gemara Notri le'olam asur, Okay, now that means that there are scouts coming from far away, but now we have a double interpretation, right? So Notri in the Gemara means Notrim in Yermia, and Notrim in Yermia, right, doesn't mean scouts, it means followers of Nebuchad Netzar. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people have that, right, make faces when they see this point. Okay, and then um, in Tanid Neiri says, um, and when the Gemara says that they didn't fast on Sunday because of Notzrim, that means because of the Babylonians that they were afraid of, and they call them Notzrim because of Nebuchadnezzar, right, as we explained in the Pasuk, Notzrim by Emeris Merchak, and if you pick it up after the underlining of source number 21, he says, and we know that the great idol for sun worship was worshipped at that time in Babylonia, and therefore they had their holiday on Sunday. Okay, so we can get rid of that, but how plausible is this? So um, this is Jacob Katz, the late great Jewish historian, referred to this as an example of Meiri's irenic personality. That he still wanted to get along with the Christians of his time, that he made up this claim that Notrim referred to Christians who were, um, who were Avadazara uh, worshippers. And most of... Yes? Yes. Okay, we don't know. We don't know, right? Just to you know, help, just people said, who are these followers of Nebuchadnezzar or sun worshippers that Miri just made up? He may have misidentified them. Okay, just to be coincidence, there are people called Notrim who are, uh, who are right, who have a holiday on Sunday. But who are these people? Rabbi Yochan himself is late. He's retrojecting. On to, he's retrojecting. Right? Rabbi Yochan himself is, is right. His first generation Amora, so he's way past the thing. So the mission just has to be written after you know after zero C, right? There's plenty of time. For that, right? Yeah, but well, okay, right? Christianity, you know, they may well believe as we, right, as the Christians do, that Christianity started in zero C, right, which gives us plenty of time till the destruction. Okay, but people thought Erie made this up. Um, then, uh, a while back in, uh, I think, 1989, Jewish Quarterly Review, a historian named Leonard Zelkman published a very interesting piece. Uh, and now, here again, I, I unfortunately I don't have the original article with me. And the way I first heard the story is much better than the way the, actual, the article is actually written. But I'm going to take a little bit of poetic license in telling you the story the way my friend Jakob Ginnak told it to me. Right, in, the, right, in, the early, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, middle class, middle and upper class uh, British women, uh, right, British women of leisure, were supposed to write books. That was one of the things you did. You wrote a book. But in order to write a book, you had to have an experience. 
and as an upper right, and as an upper or uh, upper middle class woman and in, in England, there weren't so many experiences. So what you did was you traveled, and then you wrote a book about your travels. So one such right, one such British woman took traveled to the Middle East, and while she was there, she met a group of people called the Nusserite, uh, who um, right now the Nusserite turns out claim descent from the Bukhadnezar's daughter, and they are sun worshippers. And they start in Babylonia during the Sassanid period, which is the period of the Talmud. And right, their primary legend is one of this great idol of the sun. And that legend shows up in Provence Christian literature at the time of Meiri. Um, so, it seems at least plausible now that Meiri didn't make it up. Right, that there was a group, uh, there was a religious group of sun worshippers in Provence in Meiri's time, who claimed descent from the Vuchadnezar, and who, in fact, had their origins in Babylonia during the Sassanid period. Now, whether that's what the Talmud means by Notzrim or not, we don't know, but at least we know Meiri didn't make it up. Okay, so we have a way, if we wished, right, we have a way of reading the Talmud so that it doesn't refer to Christians. Okay, but what does Meiri actually think? Okay, right, Meiri goes to all this effort to, right, to counter-read the Talmudic statements that seem to imply Christians are of the Abed What does he really believe? Um, so in a in a, uh, a book called um, Bain, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting the title again. I have it there, right? Bain Torah Chachma, right? Which is uh, Moshe Halbertel's um, uh, intellectual biography of Meiri. Um, so the question of Meiri's halachic position had been discussed back and forth for many years. Articles by Jacob Katz, Ephraim Orbach, um, and a number of, a number of other famous scholars. Um, Halbertal's treatment in Bein Torah which is then translated, in the, I think, in the first Eida journal, although the translation here is mine and not from there, um, is a, a tremendous improvement on the previous scholarship in the field. You know, previous scholarship had discussed like six or seven places where Miri makes reference to this issue. At the end of Halbertal's article, there are a hundred. And so, whatever one thinks of Halbertal's conclusions, one has to acknowledge up front that his research is vastly superior anyone else's, and that he raised the discussion immensely. So here's my summary, I think, you know, this is a quote, but I think it's a fair summary of what he thinks. Right? He says that Meiri uses two distinctions. One is between umot hakdumot she'avdu elilim umot she'bizmano she'nan avdot elilim. Okay, one is a religious distinction. They're the early primitive nations that worshipped idols and the contemporary nations that don't. Okay, the second one is a moral distinction. Between nations that are not bounded by the ways of legal religion and nations that are. Okay? Or in a word between civilized nations and barbarians. Okay? Or in its other firms, right, religion, nations that have a dot, which I'm translating as a religion which has a concept of law, and nations that have no dot. Okay? So that, right, that, Helwetel begins by stating, and I think that it's Right, it's, it's unmistakable that Meiri makes both these distinctions between umok dumot of dot elilim and those that don't, and umok sheyesh lahem dot and umok that don't. Okay, then, however, Halbertal makes a stronger point. He says that Meiri uses, Meiri uses these distinctions to make halachic claims that are much more sweeping than any made by his predecessors. This was controversial before Halbertal. After Halbertal, it's, it's unquestionable. Right, Orbach, Orbach tried to argue that Meiri really just comes up with new, fancier language for the old heterium of commerce of the Baliatosfot. 
that is just un- insupportable in light of Halbertel's evidence. Neri has unbelievably sweeping um, right, um, halachic changes as a result of this argument. But then Halbertel goes one step further. And he says, right, when Neri talks about, um, talks about uh, halachic leniencies that relate to contact with non-Jews, that have some kind of connection with non-Jewish religion, right? He always uses the first distinction between worshiping idols and not worshiping idols. When he talks about contact with non-Jews that has no religious implications, then he talks about whether they have a dot or they don't have a dot. Okay, now based on that, Havotel argues, well, if Miri has these two distinctions, and he uses one of them with regard to religion, and one of them with regard to normal social intercourse, it must be that he, right, and particularly he uses the religious language, right, whether you worship idols or not, to refer to, right, to explain why we can now engage in contact that involves religion, right, it must be that he's making the statement that Christianity is not avodat elilim. Right, because every time he allows contact with Christians that has religious ramifications, he says, oh, but they're not, of, they're not avodat elilim. Right, therefore, Halbertal comes to the conclusion that for, that for Meiri, Christianity is plain and simple, not of a dazara. Right, based on that terminological claim. Okay, because right, everyone understands that Meiri has these far-reaching claims that social legislation, right, um, legal, right, legal, disabilities, right, legal disabilities, returning lost objects, all those things, Meiri changes the law in ways that we, ha- we don't have anyone else yet discovered who, inter- right, who changes the law that way, to say that, right, to say that this doesn't apply to Christians. But Hamilton goes one step further and says there's also a category of places where the law was made, made distinctions between Jews and non-Jews, not because it distinguished between human beings, but because it wished to make a barrier between religions, and those two Meiri permits, on the grounds that, on the grounds that Christians are not of Dod Elulim. Okay? That's Halbertal. Um, Review to Herzl Henkin, uh, in response to Bevanim, has a similar but, um, but, important, but importantly different treatment of Miri. So he again says, first of all, he begins by saying, look, uh, most, most Protestant churches, he's, a, you know, he's dealing halakhically, Halbertal's dealing academically. So if Hankin tells you his own position is, most Protestant churches believe in the Trinity, they perform the Mass, and they accept Jesus upon themselves as the God, therefore you can't walk into their houses, right? You can't walk into churches. Step one. Okay, he says, no, Miri says that, by the way, there's a prohibition against praising idolaters. Miri says that, Miri says that only applies to, right, to primitive idolaters not bounded by the way of law of religion who don't accept divinity. And he has a dual intention. One is, they're not bounded by the way of law of religion and its prohibitions, rather the reverse. All the sins and disgusting behaviors are attractive in their eyes. In, con- in contrast to Christianity, which forbids and punishes adultery and incest and other abominations. B that those primitive idolaters do not accept divinity. In other words, the one divinity who created heaven and earth, rather they worship idols and stars and talismanish, whatever those are, for all these are the root of idolatry. Okay. So those two distinctions are exactly parallel to Albertal. Okay, even though he began by saying, he thinks, he thinks Protest- just about all Protestants are idolaters. He begins by saying Meiri's distinction, basically he has a moral distinction, and he has a religious distinction. Right? That that Christians do believe in the one God who created heaven and earth, right, rather than worshiping idols. So therefore, if Hankin says, right, the first is connected to the second, right, because, right, and here, 
Rafenkin is really writing the same thing, really, I think he's um, channeling Halbertal. If you have competing gods, right, so then you can't have morals in the universe, because everybody can say, right, my god is in, fa- my god is in favor of my doing things, right, do- doing things that your god opposes. Um, right, and you can't believe in reward and punishment, because you can always believe that your god will reward, but that god will punish. Right, so therefore, Christianity, even though it damages the unity of God, and also violated the prohibition of idolatry in serving Jesus, nonetheless does not have opposing or split authority, and therefore, in Mary's opinion, accepts divinity. And this is a compelling rationale for distinguishing between Christianity and other idolatry, even though bowing to a crucifix is idolatry. Even according to Miri, and then he puts in parentheses, is against one who mistook Miri's intentions, namely Halberton. Um, look attentively in Miri's words, I think it's Halberton, and you will see that he's very careful not to write that there is no idolatry in Christianity, but rather that the sages did not decree regarding their festivals. And similarly, where he wrote that Ishmaelites are not idolatry, Ishmaelites and idolaters, he did not write the same regarding Christians. It turns out that even according to Miri's opinions, that Christians are not idolaters um, because of the Trinity. All right, as he wrote that they believe in, in his unity, sorry, the word missing, may be blessed, in, sorry, his, may he be blessed existence in unity. Nonetheless, their bowing to a statue is universally considered idolatry, and this is not relevant to the permission of partnering, and only Protestants who do not bow to statues, and especially do not believe that the bread of the Mass becomes the body, Right, are, in Mary's opinion, not idolaters at all. Okay, so Halbertel makes the claim that theologically for Mary, the Trinity, the, the Trinity, belief in the Trinity, does not make you an Oved Avodah There are aspects of worship in Christianity which are acts of Avodah Right, Bowing to a statue of a human being is Avodah Believing that God becomes physical is Avodah Right, But for Mary, he says, Belief in the Trinity as such is not of a Dazarach. Now, it's not entirely... Right, right, so you have, according to both Halbertal and Rafenkin, right, the belief in the Trinity as such is not of a Dazarach. Right, Halbertal seems to argue that Meiri believes that Christians as a whole are not idolaters at all. Right, Rafenkin argues that even though Christianity is not of a Dazarach, Christians themselves right, are still of the Dazarach if they perform the Eucharist in a, and, and believe in transubstantiation and if they, bow to a, um, right, if they bow to a statue of the crucifix which they accept as divine. Okay, what emerges then is that if, if Rav Henkin is correct right, and the Seder Mishnah is correct one could claim that there is in fact an absolute consensus in halachic literature which is that Christians on the whole are of Deva Dazara because they perform the Eucharist certainly at the time of the Rambam Right, all Christians in all their sects would have been of the Avodah But nowhere in the Maimonides does he claim that the reason that Christians are of the Avodah is because of their theology. Right, so it turns out, right, so, right, furthermore, nowhere does Tosfot discuss the question of whether Christians as such are of the Avodah All Tosfot addresses is the question of whether when a Christian uses the word God, is that in fact, is that Right, is that use of the word God an act of Avodah <coughs> Right, So it turns out, I think, right, that rather than, right, so, right, the way it's ordinarily presented is as the Ramam who thinks Christianity is Avodah Tosfut who thinks it's Avodah for us but not for them, and Amiri who thinks it's not Avodah at all. Right, actually, it turns out that the Rambam, Tosfut, and the Amiri all agree that, right, that belief in the Trinity as such, while it would be forbidden for Jews 
and Yehorek Yavur is not necessarily, right, um, actually we're not even clear what it is, for, what belief is for Jews, we should point out. I don't, we don't even know what the status of that is. That belief in a divided Godhead, right, is something that is forbidden for Jews, but not, right, but not for non-Jews. But nonetheless, there are many things in Christian worship which are Yehorek Yavur, namely the Eucharist and bowing to, right, and bowing to, bowing to a crucifix with an image, etc. Okay, what remains to be determined then only is whether this presentation of Miri, as Halbertal and Ref- sets it out and Rafankin agrees, is correct. Um, now here we should put out, a, put in a, 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 a preface. Miri's position is very attractive to um, us liberal monorthodox Jews. Because Miri enables us to right, basically get rid of all the morally problematic legislation relating to non-Jews because he says all distinctions between Jews and non-Jews in law do- doesn't apply to Christians. As against that, Rav Miri therefore is deeply problematic for those non-liberal, non-monorthodox Jews, and therefore there are um, right, there are several avenues of attacking this. One is to claim that Miri didn't really mean it; that all of these statements are there for the censor, or alternatively, um, to tell a legend about how the only manuscript of the Miri exists in the Vatican, and for all we know, these all these statements about this are Jesuit interpolations. Um, so. <laughs> While the legend of the Me'iri being discovered in the 20th century in the Vatican and taken out, memorized by one person with a photographic memory, was allowed to read one Masechta a year. That's how I was taught it in Yeshiva. Right? There was this one man who was allowed to the Vatican Library one day a year and he's allowed to read one Masechta of Me'iri and he has a photographic memory and he comes out and writes it down. Right? This is not true, and we know this is not true because if you look in the catalog of the Harvard Library, you'll see that there are Masechta of the Me'iri published in the 19th century. Okay, also if you look at Rav Yosef David Azulai, the Birke Yosef's catalog of Jewish books published in the early 19th century, he's got Miri Masechtot on it. So that's just not true. Um, on the other hand, it is true that there is only one manuscript of the Miri, and that, for example, in one important place in Yuma, um, although there is only one manuscript of the Miri, there are two editions which say very different things. Right, the two printed editions off the same manuscript have very different texts, and the manuscript has disappeared. Uh, right, so we don't quite know, right, what's really going on, uh, right, what's really going on historically with the mirror. Okay, so what I want to do now is to try it briefly, um, to sketch out, well, is Halbertal, right, Halbertal has a very powerful thesis. Okay, right, his thesis is that the Miri has two distinctions, those distinctions are linguistically determined, right, he uses the term avodat elilim as opposed to ein lahem dat, when he wants a religious as opposed to a moral distinction, and therefore we can see that Miri keeps these categories distinct, and he has a special category for religion. So, let's begin with what is the most obvious place in which Miri relates to religion, as opposed to just social legislation. Source number 24, right, Miri says, the one who sees Jewish synagogues intact makes a blessing, who sees them in their destruction also says a blessing, but the blessing blesses the true judge. Okay, what about houses of Avodah so here he says, you know what? The rule that you're supposed to make a positive blessing when you see houses of Avodah destroyed and a negative blessing when you see houses of Avodah um, intact, that doesn't, apply to, that doesn't apply to churches. When he says that, what the language he uses is, Well, if Meiri really keeps his terminology distinct, and only uses Avodat Elilim when he's talking about religious matters, what's he doing, right? What, what, is, what is the distinction between civiliza- civilization and barbarism have to do with, with blessings you make in the context of destroyed houses of worship? 
if you wanted an example, right, what would, if you had to say, okay, of all the laws, right, which is the law relating to contact with non-Jews that relates most explicitly to religion, this would be it. And he uses Drachei Datos. All right, in reverse, right, this is source number 25, the question about whether you're allowed to cook on Yantif for non-Jews. Right? So that seems about as clear as you want as a social contact that has no relationship to non-Jewish religion. Right? When Yuri explains, why can't you cook for non-Jews? Well, you can't cook for non-Jews on Yontif because, after all, that whole prohibition only applied to non-Jews who were Ovdot Elilim. No mention of Gdurot Petrochei Hadam. So, on a just straightforward level as to whether Halbertal's distinction um, hangs together, it seems to me that the primary example of what he, where he should use we should use dot, he uses elilim. The primary example we use elilim, he uses dots. Okay. Furthermore, I think that um, Rav Henkin is entirely correct when he says that if you look at Meiri, you'll notice that Meiri goes out of his way throughout right, Shas never to tell you that Christianity is not of a Dazarak. Anytime that comes up, right, he talks about Muslims, that's fine. Right, right, you know, but he, he, doesn't, he shies away from the determination, and that's awfully suspicious. Now, I could, if I wanted to bring absolute proof, which is that Meiri, in his commentary, cites the com- Maimonides' comments about, uh, right, and the Christians from all their sects are idolaters, and doesn't say anything about it. Uh, right, and that would seem to be absolute proof that Meiri concedes the Christians are idolaters. However, here I just want to, here I have a scholarly claim, which, uh, to my mind, has not been verified or disproven, which is that although, again, there's only one manuscript of Meiri. In that manuscript of Meiri, all his discussions of the Mishnah begin by citing Maimonides. So far as I can tell, and I've asked some great medievalists, there is no instance anywhere in which Meiri responds to that commentary of Maimonides. And it seems, therefore, to me at least likely that Meiri never saw the commentary of Maimonides. Um, and it just happens to be a manuscript artifact. That the only manuscript we had of Meiri was actually a double manuscript, which included both the commentary of Maimonides, followed by the commentary of Meiri, which people then understood as saying, oh, the Meiri bases his commentary on that, but there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Right? So far as I can tell, right, there's no evidence that Meiri ever saw it. It was being translated as Meiri was writing, but we don't know that he had such a commentary. Uh, there is room for somebody who wants to do a doctorate uh, for trying to figure out whose translation of the, of the, of the commentary of the Mishnayot made it into that manuscript, because it seems to be a translation of a manuscript much later than the standard medieval translation. Um, right, um, but uh, much earlier, I mean, it's a manuscript which was later uh, in Maimonides' lifetime, um, which actually, it actually comes closer to the Kafach edition than it does to the standard Ibn Tibbin translation, but, so while I could prove my case that way, that would be cheating, because I don't think it's true. Um, but it seems to me that, again, Rav Henkin's basic point that Miri never says it straight out, why not? And secondly, that, um, that Halbertal's claim of a consistent terminological distinction is simply not true. Again, take this evidence as compelling or not. However, what does Miri really think about Christianity? Because he does make all these claims. So if you look at source number 26, Miri says that there are, that the Emunotem Akdumot, the primitive religions, were Nikshalim, Bemunat Hashniyut, Ushar Vadot Shel They stumbled in belief in duality, and in, uh, right, and in the other beings of heaven. So Miri clearly doesn't tolerate polytheism. Nonetheless, if we look at source 27, right, he tells us that there are, right, that, that the social applications don't apply to kol shahu me'amamin hagdurim b'trachei hadat ve'avdehu eluhut al-ezet sad 
אף על פי שאמונתם רחוקה מאמונתנו, אינם בכלל זה. Right? So nations who are bounded by the ways of religion and be- worship the divinity in some form. Right? So Christians are believers in the correct divinity in some form, even though their beliefs are distant from ours in some ways. Okay, and then, just to confuse us in source, 20, in source um, 28, he says, ומכל מקום האומות הגדולות בדרכי הדתות, ומאמינים במציאותו יתברך, they believe in the existence of God, ליאחדותו. In his unity, ויכולתו, and his ability. Okay, right, so Meiri, and this is again referring to Christians. So Meiri describes Christians as not polytheists, right, because the primitive religions believe in Shniyut. But Christians are not Nikshal in Emunat Shniyut. Right, they believe in, they worship, they worship the true divinity, and they believe in God's unity and omnipotence. Okay, right, that's a theological portrait of Christianity according to Meiri. It seems to me that the, um, the easiest way of reconciling this is to read Meiri the way I read the initial position of Tosfa, which is that Meiri be- says the belief in the Trinity as such, right, and this is what Rav Hankin states, right, belief in the Trinity as such is not of a Dazarah, right, but that doesn't tell you anything about the practice of Christianity. The practice of Christianity may well be of a Dazarah. Okay, in conclusion, I just need to point out, however, that... Um, Right, that seems to be the theological position. The area is tremendously important halachically because he gives us all this room. And here I have to, um, again, distinguish between the is and the ought. Um, the ought, I think, is that we ought to paskin like Miri. Uh, I would li- right, uh, the correct psaq in contemporary times is to paskin like Miri in all these places and to eliminate the distinctions between, the invidious distinctions in halacha between Jews and non-Jews in all financial and legal matters. But um, as, a, as a, you know, um, historian of halacha, right, an honest reader, so we have to be open to the possibility that Mary didn't really mean these things. Right, and these were apologetic. So here I just have to put, the, put several pieces of evidence on the table in front of you, and you can decide for yourself what they do. Um, in Source 29, Mary deals with the, um, right, deals with the, um, pro- with the prohibition against, um, right, against, um, part- against partnering with non-Jews because you're afraid they'll take oaths. And his explanation for this is precisely the same as Tosfut. Right? He says it's because, right, it's simply a technical matter that in their oaths, right, they intend to, they, right, they intend by the name of God, the maker of heaven. Okay, that to me doesn't mean that very much. You could argue, right, as Katz argues, right, sorry, as Orbach argues, this means that all the other stuff is just rhetoric and this really ultimately relies on the same heter. I don't think that's true. What I would argue is that that in principle, Meiri's theological heter is exactly the same. Right? In terms of his position, when it comes to whether something is Avadazara, Meiri and Tosfut have no disagreement at all. Right? Belief in, right, belief in a divided Godhead is not Avadazara, right, at least not for non-Jews. Um, the Chiddush of Meiri is his claim of Umot Tagdara B'Druchei Hadat, that the fact that Christians are civilized right, means that all the social legislation against Ovdei Avadazara and the Talmud does not apply to them, I would suggest, even though they are of the Avadazara. But they're not what the Talmud meant by that. So here, right, the question, so how, how does one test whether Miri means this, means all this, this thing halakhically or not? So, um, I want to just quote two things which at least disturb me. Right, one of which I don't really care about very much, and one of which I care about greatly, so that'll get, make it fair to you. Um, the first one is, Miri um, says, Zesha bi'arna she'en avut l'goy. 
when we explain that Gentiles have no halachic fatherhood, it's not because we think that, um, right, that most Gentile women are promiscuous and therefore we can't know who the father really is. That's not true. Right? We could assume that, the fa- right, that most Christian women right, have children from their husbands. But he says the reason is, right, if you look at the underlying section, is Elok, right, he said the example, sorry, the example of this is identical twins, right, twins, right, twins we know are from the same father, right, um, right, in all those cases, nonetheless, we're not going to, right, we don't care about, um, about fatherhood. It says, Kach Adin, right, he says this is the case, Kol Shu Elilim, Begeder Hadatot. Okay, all this is the case, it's true, Anytime people are uh, worshippers of idols and not in the um, and not in the category of bound by law by law religion. Implication of this miri is that, for example, converts from Christianity are still related to their are still related to their initial families. In the history of halacha, so far as I know, there has never been the slightest suggestion that anyone would consider such a position. And so the question then is, okay, how seriously can we take Miri when he says that a religion, that a legislation was only intended for those, right, is it apologetic or is it real? It's almost impossible to take this as a genuine halachic statement. So I, I take the implication of it, right, saying that it applies to them and therefore doesn't apply to Christians. Okay, so you might say, okay, good. So we'll claim that one time he made an apologetic statement, and everywhere else he means it for real. So that's where the last statement becomes really problematic. The last statement is one that, you know, that we celebrate. Right, last day, Miri says, why is it that we don't save non-Jews on Shabbos? Well, we don't save non-Jews on Shabbos because we're not required to be mechal Shabbos for them. Because they have no law religion. Implication, but if they had a dot, say contemporary people, of course we would be mechal Shabbos to save them. And Miri thereby becomes the way out of that classic moral conundrum about saving non-Jews on Shabbos. And that's one we really want to paskin like. At the same time, I have to say, again, he's the only one who ever said this, and it's suspicious that there's one other place where he goes, where he goes out on this deep limb, and in both of those places, as opposed to telling us the halakha positively, all he does is say is, the old halakha applied to people who were X. And we're supposed to deduce or not, and it doesn't apply to people who are Y. Um, so I'm left not sure whether right, the more extreme halakhic statements of Meiri can be presumed to be halakhically serious, or whether there aren't times when he's at least partially apologetic. I should point out other problems with using Miri as a, uh, Miri as a precedent. Um, one is that if I'm correct, and I'm following Halbertal on this, that Miri's definition of, of a dot is a religion that enforces law, Protestantism just doesn't work. Right? Contemporary Protestantism isn't right, right. All religions that don't believe in religious law are not from Miri dot. They go back to being barbarians. So Miri doesn't necessarily function as a precedent. Secondly, it seems clear from his language of people who ban Gilead Rayot and other Toei votes, well, Toeva, you know, at least logically has a particular reference to homosexuality. Right? So it may be that Miri would argue that any religion that endorses homosexuality is not actually a legitimate religion and civilized thereby. So there are dangers in using Miri as, um, in using Miri as specific technical precedent. Um, nonetheless, I should say that my own, uh, my own position is very much that to the extent possible we should pass him like Miri because Miri's claim, right here the Seder Mishnah points out correctly that 
the Bahag, the Ramban, and the Iri all worked on the presumption that you could not you could not have a moral society in the absence of a religion with enforcement powers. And the Seder Olam says, I don't think so, right? Who says that's true? And if the ground of Miri's position is that there can be good people who don't have who don't have perfect theology, it may be that Miri's conclusions are tenable, even if his premises right his premises don't necessarily follow. Um, so I would argue that again, halachic status of Christianity. My contention is that um, at the very that the standard historical position is that Christianity is of a dazara, but for reasons of worship as opposed to reasons of belief. Uh, my own halachic position is what I expressed in the response I've written for here is that uh, Christianity probably is some form of safek of Adazara because how do we know whether they say three or whether they, they mean three or they mean they can't tell us, we can't tell them so, right, so I don't know how we can make a theological determination right, a halachic determination about their theology it's like determining you know, we have a figure ground picture right? so are you possible, right, is it the figure or is it the ground we don't know right? um, but um, right, but I think that Meiri's claim that the the halachic status of a particular religion is not does not necessarily connect directly to the halachic status of its adherents, right? And the way by which the way in which one judges its adherents are by whether they are civilized, right? As opposed to right, as, right whether they're ca- they are capable of participating and or, right and um, ordering a structure a structured moral society, right? That seems to me tremendously attractive. Um, I also want to point out, again, I just feel, feel an obligation to say this, that it seems to me that in the realm of theology as well, that one has to acknowledge the, um, the repentance of the Catholic Church over the past 45 years. One of the most astounding phenomena, I think, in human history. Not defeated, you know, militarily, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't, we didn't defeat it intellectually, right? The Holocaust happened. And that caused the Cheshbon HaNefesh within a religion that, so far as I know, has no, um, no antecedent, right? To have a religion so radically change its own belief structure in response to internally created moral pressure. Right? That's a fair description of what the Church did in Vatican II. Uh, to the point where all its, right, all its textbooks have, at least in the United, certainly in the United States, and spreading, I think, uh, more throughout the world, you know, they wait, something which was before required to be taught about Jews is now forbidden to be taught, uh, which you have, you know, whole series of philo-Semitic Catholic theologians writing books explaining why, why, why supersessionism is evil, right, and Christians should no longer believe that, right, that, Jews, that they have the only true covenant, the Jewish covenant is still valid, right, when you have a pope putting a kvittel in at the, at, right, at, at the Kotel Amaravi, right, and with seriousness. It um, seems to me that, while I don't, you know, I don't have the confidence that these changes are permanent, um, I agree entirely with the Rav that we are not entitled to make deals Right, and say, okay, because you changed a lot of your theology, therefore we're going to change a lot of our theology, that it would be um, just responsible and dead not to notice. Right? And to say that this doesn't impose an obligation on us to, to some, find some way to humanly meet them. Right? And say, wow, that's an awesome thing you did. Right? Um, right? And, right? and we need to learn from that kind of tshuva. Right? Because that kind of, who can, it's unimaginable that kind of tshuva. For a powerful right, for a power right, for a religion to just go through its own books and just tear out things, and say, you know what, that which we taught for a long time, that's evil, and we need kapara, right? Because right, because we, because our th- our teachings led to so much evil. Um, some kind of response to that is called for. At the very least, right, in confrontation, right, and a number of us made this point at the symposium. I think it's absolutely correct. 
that in confrontation the Rav in some way or another imposed severe restrictions on interfaith dialogue in matters of theology. We can debate from here to tomorrow what the grounds of those distinctions were and what the grounds are. He also imposed an obligation to work together where possible in areas of social justice. Um, and the Orthodox community has engaged, in, has been tremendously machmir on right, the Rav's limitations in, in interfaith dialogue, but uh, tremendously mekil on the notion of making common cause in areas, right, in areas of social justice. Um, it seems to me that at the very least the reaction to the Catholic tshuva in the area of, the area of theology should be an orthodox tshuva in the area of social justice. Knowledge that we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, uh, better or for worse, and in some cases, in particular in the area of the civil rights course. Uh, one of my students at Harvard this year wrote a, um, wrote a paper on orthodox involvement in the civil rights movement. And I recall uh, years ago, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik used to tell us that Cecil Roth at one point was really upset that people ignored the Jews of England. So he wrote a book about the accomplishments of the Jews of England. And a very thin book. <laughs> um, right? So, by the same token, you're right in the Middle Ages, right? So on the same token, you know, this paper on Orthodox involvement in the Civil Rights Movement, it turned up some amazing things. I hope someday I'll have a chance to teach Rav Pinchas Tait, Zichron Alivracha's unbelievable speech at the Polo Grounds with Robert F. Kennedy, um, encourage, right, in the name of the Agudat Rabbanim, encouraging everyone to go to the March in Washington. Uh, it's one of the, the most amazing uh, Orthodox religious documents of our time. But nonetheless, we weren't there. Uh, right, it's a fair statement is that we weren't there. And it seems to me that, um, right, that again, this is a halachic shir, and it's a halachic shir which is an is more than an ought, uh, but on the ought level that um, I think that, the rea- that Catholicism's tshuva needs a reaction, and Baruch Hashem, we are not without uh, things ourselves to do tshuva on. Thank you very much again for the whole uh, time. Very glorious meeting.